Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. Welcome to 2022, everybody. Even if I say the sports calendar doesn't reset till after the Super Bowl. It's a new year, and BetOnline remains the number one spot for all the best wagering action in the new year. You can sign up today and receive a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit using the promo code BLEAV, B-L-E-A-V, when you sign up with the link in the description to this episode. BetOnline, where the game starts. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, or good night. However and whenever it is you may be listening, thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of The Take It. Easy Podcast, live on the Believe Podcast Network, except it isn't live because it's a podcast. Welcome in, everybody. It is NFL Monday, Wild Card Weekend Edition here on the Take It Easy Podcast. Podcast, but really it's half of Wild Card Weekend, so maybe we should call this NFL Monday half Wild Card Weekend because we already got two of the games out of the way. We got three more to break down here today on our NFL Monday podcast. It was a hell of a day. Hell of a day. And there's so much I want to talk about here. Starting right off, 49ers Cowboys. That's the one we're going to do. That's the game I got the breakdown for, not just of the game itself, but I've also got a Cowboys take that I've been sitting on for about four weeks, five weeks, six weeks, but really goes all the way back two years to the very earliest origins of this podcast in the summer of 2019 when we were doing podcasts with really crappy audio and me running up and down streets and doing tired analysis that was super breathy. And when I was learning how to do this type of analysis, but there was one thing that I knew from the beginning was always going to be right for my football nerd mind. And lo and behold, it has come true in the most predictable fashion possible. So I've been sitting on that Cowboys take. We'll get to that. It was actually how I was going to lead into the game around the third quarter. And then 49ers clock management came in because the 49ers almost bungled that one away at the end against the Cowboys. And we've gotten used to the Kyle Shanahan jokes. And this is one of the things that I've thought about in the aftermath of this game. A lot of the tropes that the internet's been using for the last 10 years to do NFL jokes, whether it's 49ers blowing leads or Kyle Shanahan choking leads, Atlanta sports teams choking leads, annoying Cowboys fans, Cowboys always being close and then blowing it. I know Stephen A. Smith is the ultimate troll on that one, and Shannon Sharps tried to adopt that role because people really love Cowboys talk. 
when it comes to sports talk radio and when it comes to programming on a national level. I guess we technically have national programming, but it's national programming for 150 people instead of 150,000 people. And so one of the things I find interesting about the analysis that gets done with the Cowboys and when we make memes afterwards and when we make jokes on the internet is a lot of these jokes have kind of worn thin because we were making Cowboys choking jokes back when Tony Romo was the quarterback of the Cowboys and this is now year six of Dak and Zeke which blew my mind because I remember Dak and Zeke being a revelation when they first started and they were the team that what the team that was 13 and 3 their rookie year and they almost won the Super Bowl but then Aaron Rodgers had a toe tapper on the sidelines to beat them and it was a really crazy team that Cowboys team and that was five full years ago now five years ago this year it's really now six calendar years since that Cowboys and Dak Zeke rookie year crazy season I remember watching that as a kid and and it's crazy that time has flown by so quick and Georgia sports teams win championships. The Cowboys are kind of the same team that they've always been. Shanahan blows leads kind of, but he's kind of shed that identity now because not he's no longer the coordinator of the Falcons in that Super Bowl team. The Falcons are terrible now. It's like half a decade ago, and Shanahan isn't the guy from the Super Bowl. That was now two full years ago, and so... Shanahan's now the guy who drafted Trey Lance and is regarded as a pretty good coach and schematically messes up teams, which he did against the Cowboys. Like, the Cowboys didn't score points early in the game. 49ers played right into their strength. End arounds to Debo Samuel, take Micah Parsons out of the game. Jimmy Garoppolo doesn't make the big mistake until he did make the big mistake when they had the gigantic lead. Then Dak Prescott throws a pick and it immediately turns into a Debo Samuel touchdown. Like they did all of the things textbook wise to beat the Cowboys with a defense that balled out to start the game. And it was really, really strange to see the 49ers dominate the Cowboys the way they did and execute their game plan perfectly. And the Cowboys just having no answer until the fourth quarter when we're watching, we're like, that's why the Cowboys were universally regarded as a better team than the 49ers. And when I said there were only five good teams in the NFC this year, and one of them was the Cardinals who got injured and now they're no longer good. So there's really only four good teams in the NFC, the Packers, the Bucks, the Cowboys, and the Rams. That was the reason why was that fourth quarter with the Cowboys. The Cowboys drive down the field, kick a field goal, get a turnover, turn it into points, immediately off the turnover, which the Cowboys defense was great at generating turnovers this year. It was the thing that separated them through and through. Like the re- the reason the defense got better this year was, yes, you draft Micah Parsons, defensive rookie of the year, Trayvon Diggs, hugely turnover based. And when you generate turnovers, they're so freaking costly. Big plays happen way more often than turnovers happen in the modern NFL and turnovers generate 10 point swings because there's so much offensive firepower a lot of these times and so one of the things I found interesting with the Cowboys defense at the end of the game was opportunistic yes score a lot of points yes Leighton Vander Esch tackling Debo Samuel one yard short of the first down 
crazy play, like one of those plays that Tony Romo and Jim Nance were like overemphasizing it, but with good reason on that one, to get him one yard short, wrap up Debo Samuel, and not allow him to extend the ball for a first down that would have come close to sealing the game, awesome job. Cowboys got it back, they end up going, uh, or end up turning the ball back over to the 49ers as they're driving down the field to overcome the third largest fourth quarter deficit in the history of the postseason. Not just because Shanahan's like blowing leads, but because the Cowboys are really freaking good. And yes, Jimmy Garoppolo threw an interception. And yes, it looked like George Kittle fumbled a football while trying to run out the clock, but it happened to be an incomplete pass. If Kittle scooped it up like a wide receiver, if the throw's like two inches further, the Cowboys are winning that game against the 49ers. Or at least going to overtime, because Dak would have gotten the ball back and they wouldn't have had to run that play at the end of the game. They would have just been kicking a field goal instead. Which brings me to the last play of the game, because the last play of the game was so amazing. And this is more of a classic memes of the weekend type of thing, but that last play was so crazy. First of all, Kellen Moore runs the, I mean, not Statue of Liberty, the the hook and ladder play on the first play out. And the 49ers are just like, huh? Like the 49ers should have guarded the sideline with 30 seconds left to go. By the way, right before that, they took seven minutes to review the ball spot on the third and 10 Debo Samuel end around. And then the ref comes out and says, after review, I'm going to move the ball and remeasure or move the spot and remeasure, which tells you nothing about what they conclude. You don't know if they're going to move it closer. You don't know if they're going to move it backwards. They just says, we're going to, I'm going to move the ball and remeasure after seven minutes of replay. And then they do the chain thing that's still super funny because it was outdated seven years ago. The, the, the holding the chains and sticking it. Like when Gene Steratore stuck the, the note card down into the ground and then smirked as he granted a first down, that was when we knew the chains were dumb. And it's one of the few things that the NFL hasn't caved to public opinion on. Like, the public has been on the side of, why do we still use chains and the naked eye to measure first downs? And the NFL hasn't caved on that one. They're like, you know, we're sticking with the chains, we're sticking with the naked eye, because it only matters in the last two minutes of the game whether or not you get ball spots correct. Foreshadowing the end of that game, which is... First of all, the Cowboys get the ball in in true Kirk Cousins purgatory. There's 30 seconds left, no timeouts, length of the field to go. This is what Phillip Rivers was living in for his entire career. I know we did the Phillip Rivers purgatory, Kirk Cousins purgatory award every week on Memes of the Weekend. This is what I talk about when I talk about Kirk Cousins purgatory or Phillip Rivers purgatory. 30 seconds, no timeouts, ball at the 20-yard line. You need seven points to win the game. And... Dak, first play, first of all, 49ers don't guard the sidelines, hook and ladder play, hook and ladder 20 yards, caught by Wilson, tossed to CeeDee Lamb, out of bounds 20 yards, looks like CeeDee Lamb got hurt, shakes it off, runs back onto the field immediately afterwards, next play, 10 yard uh, screen pass to Pollard, no one guarding the sidelines, he gets 10 yards, gets out of bounds, terrible defensive play call by the 49ers to not guard the sidelines, Next play, 10-yard completion to, I think it was either Noah Brown or Dalton Schultz, but 10-yard completion, next play, nothing. They just know guarding the sidelines. Then San Francisco guards the sidelines, and Dak Prescott calls 
a a QB draw with 17 seconds left to go, and the 49ers just give him the middle of the field because, of course, you give him the middle of the field. Dak just kept going and going and going to get closer, but at a certain point, the yards are incremental compared to the time, and because the 49ers, I don't know if it was a smart defensive play or if the 49ers just, you know, didn't have anyone in the middle of the field because they were hoping Dak would go down in the middle of the field. Like, Dak just kept going and going and going. And I think it might have just been force of habit that you see the the daylight and you just keep going. And I don't even fault Dak for that one because he did get down at the very last possible moment he could have to spike the football. And they got to like the 27-yard line, and everyone was already running up with Dak. But Dak ended up going for about three seconds too long. And ironically, that ended up being the three seconds that end the game. And the referee bumping into the center and bumping into Dak just made it all the funnier as you're watching it. It was so incredibly funny. To watch the end of that with the referee doing that. Not that it even like changed the game, because even if the referee doesn't plow over the cowboy lineman and he, you know, the referee from the back line comes in and spots the ball, the cowboys are still gonna run out of time. Like the cowboys are not going to get that playoff under any circumstances. Dak just ran it to the very, very last possible second. I think they spiked it with like negative one seconds on the clock or something like that. Like Dak just needed three more seconds to keep the game alive and throw one play to the end zone. Not that they had great odds of getting there in the first place. I think probably, you know, eyeballing it when the drive started, they probably had like a 8% chance of winning the game, a 5% chance of winning the game. But what made it funnier is after you do the hook and ladder play, the 49ers don't guard the sidelines on the next two plays and you get 10-yard chunk plays in eight seconds. All of a sudden, those odds start creeping up, and it feels like the Cowboys were actually closer than they were. Because they would have had to throw a 40-yard, 30-yard game winner to the end zone, which, in fairness, Matthew Stafford did it to the Falcons last year. Justin Herbert had a 15-yard version of that on the last play of the game against the Raiders last week. But it really doesn't work out all that often. A 35-yard a a play when you know the defense is going into prevent coverage is not a great opportunity. Like the 49ers either have to bungle something really bad like the, the Aaron Rodgers Hail Mary earlier this year against... Or no, I think it was the, the Browns Hail Mary earlier this year against the Cardinals where like Byron Murphy just plays a terrible coverage on the Hail Mary and it ends up being a completion but usually someone has to do something terrible on the defense to win that one. This chance was just the defense, I think, just having no one in the middle of the field. Like I said earlier, I don't know if it was nobody guarding the middle of the field for the uh, Dallas Cowboys or for the San Francisco 49ers on the Dak scramble or if Dak just, they, they let Dak keep going. But whichever way it goes for the 49ers, like they kind of set up the Cowboys to take the bait and usually it doesn't happen which I think is why it was so surprising like they had 17 seconds they could have they could have spiked the ball they were only like one second behind in getting the playoff but it was just interesting to see the Cowboys take the bait 
on the last play of the game. Like, we've seen this scenario happen all the time. We assumed the 49ers would guard the sidelines on every play with 30 seconds left to go because the time was more important than the yards for the Cowboys. And the 49ers didn't do that coverage on defense, which was surprising. The 49ers played straight up, and the Cowboys took the sidelines and ran the hook and ladder play for 20 yards, and they got 40 yards in three plays to improve the odds at least. I was just surprised the Cowboys took the bait at the end. And we get the funny image of the referee running over the center as the last play of the game (laughs) ends it up because Dak should have given the ball to the referee instead of giving the ball to his center to eyeball spot it himself. I don't even know how they got to the 29-yard line there because Dak looked like he started his slide around the 26, and they marked it at the 29 somehow. But anyways, the Dallas Cowboys ended up losing the game because... They took the bait? Like, I was surprised that they took the bait on the final play call with 17 seconds left to go once the 49ers started guarding the sidelines, even though they probably should have been guarding the sidelines the entire way for the last 30 seconds of the game. So funny to watch it at the end of the game. And the whole way through, I was like excited and giddy because it's playoff football and it's winner go home. And then it happened at the end and it was just a magical finish just magically funny playoff finish now for my pent-up long-awaited dallas cowboys take which is not actually that spicy it's more just grounded in fact-based evidence over the last three years for the dallas cowboys so back in 2019 we were just starting out this podcast and one of the things that I talked about was uh, the Rams' strategy for how to deal with Jared Goff. It was something I was quite passionate about, that the Rams should not extend Jared Goff, that the Rams should have traded Jared Goff for a top pick in the draft, a top pick at the time I presumed would be Jake Fromm. So fortunately, the Rams did not choose to do that. I think that was also the draft class that had Daniel Jones, but also Justin Herbert could have been in that class if he didn't go back to college so you know maybe there's a scenario where the Los Angeles Rams end up getting uh Justin Herbert instead of uh Jared Goff the point being that take was something that I was very passionate about and then Jared Goff got the extension and I railed against it because it was a terrible extension made by the Rams because Jared Goff wasn't that dude and this was coming off the year that they went to the Super Bowl and all that stuff But the other one that I was passionate about, and this was a conversation we were having all the time during this 2019 year, which was Dak Prescott, Ezekiel Elliott, and Amari Cooper all were coming up on contracts at the end of the 2019 season. And this was when Zeke was holding out of training camp and doing workouts in Mexico and TMZ was following him. And we had Amari Cooper getting traded to the Cowboys. I think it was 2018 that that trade happened. So Amari Cooper would have been already on the Cowboys by this point, but coming up on a contract extension. So you had Dak contract expiring, Zeke contract expiring, because Dax was, I think Dak was already on the first year of the franchise tag at this point, because Dak... No, Dak only got one year of the franchise tag. So Dak's contract was coming up. Zeke was eligible for a contract extension. Amari Cooper was going to hit free agency a couple years later. And the thing that felt very evident was the Dallas Cowboys weren't going to be able to keep all three 
without going into salary cap purgatory. Because as great as Dak Prescott and Ezekiel Elliott and Amari Cooper were, the reason the Dallas Cowboys were able to build a winner around them was because Dak, Zeke, and Amari Cooper during the 2018 season when the Cowboys made it to the second round and lost to the Rams, and in the 2019 season where the Cowboys should have made the playoffs but ended up going 8-8 eight and eight and lost a tiebreaker to the Eagles. It was that weird season where the Eagles made the playoffs and Josh McCown was playing against Marshawn Lynch in what I still attest might be the worst playoff game in the history of the NFL. But the Eagles were 9-7 and seven and they got the four seed and the Cowboys were better than them. But during those two seasons, the thing that separated the Dallas Cowboys and made them a contender was the fact that Dak Prescott, Ezekiel Elliott, and Amari Cooper were making a combined $14 million per season between the three star players on offense. And if Dak Prescott gets a $40 million extension, let's say 35 of which is against the salary cap, Ezekiel Elliott gets an extension worth $12 million a year, I think is what Zeke's was relative to the salary cap. It might be slightly more than that. It might be closer to 14 but let's say play it safe 12 and Amari Cooper got a five-year $100 million contract. His was easy, $20 million a year. Those three players in the span of two years went from making $14 million relative to the salary cap, which is roughly about 7% of your salary cap, to now they were making a combined $75 million relative to the salary cap. And that's a five times increase with your three-star players, and they're going to be fat trimmed along the margins. In one of those cases, Jalen Smith got an extension, and he got cut, and they were able to redeem some of the money from that. They'd lose Cole Beasley in free agency. Not a huge loss, but some of the losses involved there. The Dallas Cowboys had to trim along the edges in order to build that team up or just not be participants in free agency, which is something the Dallas Cowboys did for a couple seasons. And they extended all three of them. And in hindsight, I was arguing, which is the one you don't extend? Do you not extend Dak? Do you not extend Zeke? Do you not extend Amari Cooper? You gave up a lot to get Amari Cooper. Would it be worth it to not give him up? And then they draft CeeDee Lamb in 2022 and all the math changes. It's clear in hindsight that Zeke was the one who shouldn't have been extended because they've gotten slightly less production out of Tony Pollard, but Tony Pollard is getting paid significantly less than Ezekiel Elliott, and the Dallas Cowboys could have always gotten into this game of drafting another running back in the second or third round. Maybe they get Javante Williams last year in the draft. Maybe they get uh, the the guy, Michael Carter, who the Jets drafted. Maybe they get lucky and draft Jonathan Taylor or A.J. Dillon or whatever they do in the last two years. It, it's impossible to know what they do. The, the point being, though, the Dallas Cowboys ended up extending all three of them and accepting 35% of their salary cap would be committed to those three players. And the thing that's kept the Cowboys afloat and avoided them from being in the Kirk Cousins purgatory overwhelmingly is the Dallas Cowboys drafted CeeDee Lamb in the first round, which was an amazing hit on them. They got Trayvon Diggs in the second round in 2020, amazing draft pick on their part. And they got Leighton Vander Esch in the 2019 first round. And last year they drafted Micah Parsons in the first round. The Cowboys hit on every one of their top draft picks over the past three seasons as a way to stabilize the foundation. Because you know what else the Dallas Cowboys did? They gave... $20 million a year to Demarcus Lawrence. 
So those four players were making up $90 million to $95 million against your salary cap to four players. And this is something that happens a lot in football, which is the stars and scrubs model. The Cowboys went from being a team that had lots of depth, cheap quarterback, cheap running back, relatively cheap running back, cheap wide receiver that they gave up a first round pick for, only available because John Gruden was trading every piece from the Las Vegas Raiders. And you get him for a first round pick and the Dallas Cowboys end up with 50% of their salary cap going to four star players. But the thing that ends up happening in the Stars and Scrubs model is usually the quarterback position is the one that's the cheap contract and your team can't compete with the teams that have better quarterbacks than your star quarterback or your star defensive players. Dak Prescott is a very, very good quarterback. Dak Prescott makes the Cowboys invariably better, and the Cowboys were 100% right to extend him for the contract that they did, especially given that the salary cap's about to go up because of the new television contract. Dak Prescott is a very, very good quarterback, and also is not Aaron Rodgers, is not Patrick Mahomes, is not Josh Allen, is not Lamar Jackson. And Dak Prescott has a super array of weapons built around him. The Cowboys are a second-round exit caliber team. And you know who else is a second-round caliber exit type of team? The San Francisco 49ers, who are also building on the Stars and Scrubs model. You know who else is probably a second-round exit? The Los Angeles Rams, who are also building on the Stars and Scrubs model. The Rams might lose to the Cardinals, but the Rams expect to lose in the second round. They made it to the second round last year in an upset of the Seahawks. Probably expected to lose in the wildcard game. They end up making it to the second round. It was an overachievement last year for the Rams because the Rams have Aaron Donald, which is their equivalent of Dak Prescott in terms of the impact he has on the field. You know, Aaron Donald is hugely impactful in the way a franchise quarterback is, and there's only a few players in the NFL that have that caliber of impact. T.J. Watt, uh, Derrick Henry. There's only a handful of names you can think of. The first ballot Hall of Famers that aren't quarterbacks are the ones you think of off the top of your head who can like change the game just by their presence and their team automatically wins eight or nine games just because they have them on the field. It's really hard for a non-quarterback position to have that level of impact simply because quarterbacks just control more of the game because they just possess the ball more. They touch the ball more than everyone else. And this was a predictable finish for the Dallas Cowboys. Not losing in the first round, but the Cowboys expected to beat the 49ers. The Cowboys were better than the 49ers all season. It's just they got into this game and matchups and random one-game sample sizes ended up coming back to bite them. And even then, they still showed they were a better team than the 49ers in the fourth quarter of that game. It's just that they got down early. They had a turnover. Dak throws a pick. It leads to a Debo Samuel touchdown. Kyle Shanahan game plans Micah Parsons out of the game. They don't throw to Trayvon Diggs because they don't want the costly play. They hide Jimmy Garoppolo the same way that they'd been hiding Jimmy Garoppolo for the past four seasons. And all of it worked out matchup based to allow the 49ers to beat Mike McCarthy's dumbass. And Kellen Moore running a pretty good offensive scheme, but also a scheme that got down early and was trying to go up against a pretty good defense with a pretty good pass rush that outperformed to expectations. The point being, the end result for the Dallas Cowboys 
was predictable when they signed up for this. Because as great as Dak Prescott, Ezekiel Elliott, and Amari Cooper are, that core three guys, and you can throw CeeDee Lamb in the mix now too, because CeeDee Lamb is part of that core as well. That core with a defense that's better than it used to be, but used to be pretty bad, that core is not going to stack up against the Green Bay Packers, which was probably going to be their next opponent if they... Or I'm sorry, they would have played Tampa Bay in the next game. And maybe they beat Tampa Bay because they can go to a passing attack and Dak Prescott throwing the ball 50 times the way they should have beaten Tampa Bay the first week of the season. But at the same time, I find it really, really fascinating that the Dallas Cowboys end up putting together a team that was set up to be a second-round exit. And look at the past three years for the Dallas Cowboys. Post-Zeke extension, post-Amari Cooper extension, post-Dak Prescott extension. And I, I know the Dak extension didn't kick in until this year, but he was on the franchise tag last year, so he was still making up a bunch of the salary cap. The Cowboys had 8-8, eight and eight, but they should have been better that year. They fired Jason Garrett at the end of the season, bring in a new coach, reset. You know, this is a new Cowboys team where most of your roster is dedicated to Dak, Zeke, and Amari. 6-10 and last year because of Dak Prescott's ankle injury. If Dak Prescott stays healthy, they win the NFC East. They lose to Tampa Bay in the wild card. This year, they win 11 games, run away with the NFC East, and lose in the wild card to San Francisco. The Dallas Cowboys are this team because as much as you add Micah Parsons and as much as you add Trayvon Diggs and as much as you capitalize on turnover opportunities and bring in Dan Quinn as a defensive coordinator, that impacts the game along the margins. And the Cowboys also won five more games this year than they did last year. And I think the biggest thing that had an impact on that was not Trayvon Diggs having 10 interceptions, although it helped, or Micah Parsons winning Defensive Rookie of the Year, although it helped, or Dan Quinn being the defensive coordinator for one season until he goes to coach the Denver Broncos, which maybe helped a little bit, maybe just a little bit, or drafting CeeDee Lamb, which again helped a little bit. Getting Dak Prescott healthy was the thing that had the biggest impact for the Dallas Cowboys, and all of those things combined together elevated the ceiling for the Dallas Cowboys, made it such that the Cowboys could have gone to the conference championship game and also could have lost in the wildcard game, all based on matchups and all based on game planning around what the Dallas Cowboys don't do. Because as much as Randy Gregory was awesome this year, and as much as Demarcus Lawrence had a comeback year, and Leighton Vander Esch was great in the middle, and Trayvon Diggs was excellent, the core of the Dallas Cowboys team financially is built into that offense that is really good, but also means that the Dallas Cowboys can only do so much with keeping certain people around. They couldn't keep Byron Jones. They couldn't keep Cole Beasley. They couldn't keep fringe-level players that they've struggled to replace talent with. And I know Cedric Wilson's a pretty good receiver, and Gallup was a great pickup for them to help stabilize the offense. But last year was a wash. The the two years that Gallup was awesome, because Gallup was a late-round guy for them, uh, didn't really find the field his first two seasons, but really picked it up the last two years. They had a season that didn't matter because Dak Prescott broke his ankle and Andy Dalton can only do so much in the offense. And after Andy Dalton, it was Garrett Gilbert for one game. That can only get you so far. Um, and then this year, Michael Gallup gave you 12 games of the offense looking awesome and then ended up tearing his ACL and he wasn't available for the playoff game. So as much as Gallup helped, it didn't give them much of a chance to actually elevate the team based on season level results. And now Michael Gallup's going to be a free agent. 
The Cowboys are maybe going to be able to afford him now because of the injury, but more likely than not, the Cowboys lose Michael Gallup in free agency. Maybe they lose Kellen Moore here. Maybe uh, they're probably going to lose Dan Quinn here because it looks like Dan Quinn's about to be named the head coach of the Broncos. Maybe they lose a couple pieces here and there, and maybe they start to try and shop Ezekiel Elliott into this offseason. But these are the decisions the Cowboys signed up for when they didn't compromise on what they had, and now they chose not to evolve with the times. Good enough to win the NFC East every single year, but the Dallas Cowboys have a super, super predictable team. And the reason it's predictable is because it's the same core of players that it's been for the last five seasons in Dallas and they've had wildly sporadic results you know they won a playoff game against the Seahawks when Dak and company were still on a rookie contract and then they lost to the Rams and CJ Anderson then they missed the playoffs in a year that they should have gotten the wild card then Dak Prescott breaks his ankle and then they make the playoffs and lose in the first round to the 49ers But the Cowboys are only as high as their ceiling can be. And the only way to elevate that ceiling, similarly to what we talked about with the Patriots, net more generational players that have impacts. And the Cowboys did that. Adding Micah Parsons was hugely lucky for them. The fact that the Dallas Cowboys were able to get a generational talent with a mid to uh, mid to, I know they picked him with pick 10, but they had to trade up to pick 10 to get him. The fact that they had a middle of the road finish to a season and still got a generational talent and still got an amazing wide receiver in CD Lamb. Not going to say generational talent, but one of the top 15 to 20 wide receivers in the NFL in the middle of the draft is the reason the Cowboys were even in the position to make the playoffs in combination with the fact that they play in a really, really crappy division. That's the reason the Cowboys were there in the first place. And yet all of those players still weren't enough when push came to shove to get the Cowboys into the second round, which is not their fault. The Cowboys were a second round exit team. The Cowboys expected to make it to the second round and get smacked around by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers for a half hour and or an hour and a half and then go home. Like the Cowboys expected to get to the second round. This is just a disappointing finish to the season because they could have, should have, would have beat the 49ers. They were a better team than the 49ers. They just lost on the, the, the random sample size and the 49ers having an early lead and being able to game plan around that. Like that's the reason the Cowboys lose that game. The Cowboys were still a second round caliber exit and getting Micah Parsons, getting CD lamb, getting all those generational talents, doing the thing that every team tries to do from the bottom of the draft, which is get really, really great players with middle of the road draft picks or second round picks or third round picks. The Cowboys did that. And it got them from being a team that just missed the playoffs in 2018 or 2019. It got them back to the place that they were four years ago in 2018 with Dak and Zeke and Amari only making $14 million a year. Getting all those young, cheap, those cheap, really talented players, Van Der Esch uh, in the first round, middle of the first round, Van Der Esch, uh, Micah Parsons pick 10, CeeDee Lamb pick uh, 15. Uh, Trayvon Diggs in the second round getting really talented players with low draft picks has helped get the Cowboys back to the place they were when Dak Prescott Zeke and Amari Cooper were only making 7% of their salary cap instead of now making 40% of their salary cap because they lost the players that were 
those guys before. Who was Trayvon Diggs before Trayvon Diggs? It was Byron Jones. Uh, who was Micah Parsons? Well, I guess it was Demarcus Lawrence, but Demarcus Lawrence isn't quite the same player he was before. Who was Demarcus Lawrence before Demarcus Lawrence? It was Micah Parsons. Who was CeeDee Lamb before CeeDee Lamb? Even if this is an insult to CeeDee Lamb, it was Cole Beasley, and it was also Randall Cobb, and it was Terrence Williams, and all those guys that the Cowboys had. The Cowboys got better at the wide receiver position, but Amari Cooper is also a lesser player than he was before, and it all evens out. The easiest answer just would have been the Cowboys shouldn't have kept Ezekiel Elliott, and it would have given them a little bit of relief. But they would have had to hit again on the running back position to even get them in a close space. And part of that reason is Dak Prescott's a really, really good quarterback, but he doesn't have the talented team Aaron Rodgers has, and he doesn't have the talented team that Tom Brady has, and those guys just break the system a little bit because the Packers are close to a super team, and Tampa Bay has a lot of guys willing to come back on cheap contracts. It's pretty hard to compete with that, but the Cowboys still got close. And for that... The Dallas Cowboys should be commended for their effort because it took a lot of work, a lot of luck for them to get back to the same place they were four years ago. When the roster changed around the edges, they still got back to that place and now they'll kind of stay there. And there's no shame in that. Winning three consecutive division titles is pretty cool. It's only when you get to play teams that you know are more talented and deeper than you that the Cowboys get in trouble. So this is what the Cowboys signed up for, and they executed really well to get back to the place that they were four years ago when they signed Dak, Zeke, and Amari Cooper, and Demarcus Lawrence, if we want to throw him in the mix, all to gigantic record-setting contracts instead of letting one go away and giving themselves some flexibility to sign other people and help supplement players on that roster. Because if you save the $15 million a year against the cap for Ezekiel Elliott, you can bring in another corner. You can bring in another. Uh, you can bring in another running back on a cheaper contract. Uh, you can bring in another lineman, or you can bring in another wide receiver. Whatever else you do, you just get more flexibility to make moves. Not that it would have mattered in in changing today's result, but it just took the Cowboys a long time to get back to that place they were at before. Was I right or was I right about the Kansas City Chiefs? Oh, Patrick Mahomes, 405 yards, 75% completion percentage, five touchdowns, no picks. Beautiful. Mwah! Chef's kiss on the Patrick Mahomes domination train. I know I said that I wanted the Kansas City Chiefs to get a first-round bye and we cancel this game so they get the rest that they deserve and earned through the regular season, but if that had happened, we wouldn't have gotten to watch magical Kansas City Chiefs football at work. And we missed this all throughout the regular season, and the thing I shouldn't have avoided talking about is regular season just didn't matter to the Chiefs. We didn't say that enough, like just simply did not matter what the Chiefs did in the regular season. Their goal was to just get healthy by the time they got to the playoffs. 
And Kansas City did it because they could win 12 games with their eyes closed this season. And lo and behold, they did it. Now, I still think Buffalo's probably going to win against the Chiefs on Sunday. It's going to be the game we're going to talk about for hours upon hours the rest of the week with all of our friends. So let's delay the analysis for now. The thing that I find so amazing about the Kansas City Chiefs offense, other than all the stuff we found amazing about the Chiefs, that you have the greatest quarterback to ever pick up a football, that you have that tight end who's going to go to the Hall of Fame, that wide receiver that's going to go to the Hall of Fame, the greatest offensive mind in the history of the NFL, and interchangeable running backs that can go for 100 yards against a pretty good defense. The Kansas City Chiefs offense, even when it looks like things are moving slow because the Steelers' defense is playing awesome, and even when Mahomes does the Mahomes thing, where they get the big break at 0-0 in the game, they start at the 27-yard line, and T.J. Watt has an insane play. Like, I'm amazed by it, where T.J. Watt goes hash-to-hash, Mahomes is rolling to his right, and Mahomes has really the last year looked less athletic than I remember Mahomes looking in the past. He He has a bunch of those moments all the time, where Mahomes does the super athletic thing, where He's rolling to his right, tiptoes, dodges a defender, dives for the goal line, all that stuff. Like, it just looks less athletic post-turf toe surgery and post-knee injury. Like, Mahomes is getting older in the way a lot of these guys are getting older in the way you get less athletic as you age into your 30s. At least most people get less athletic as they age in their 30s. Some people are like Tom Brady and they weren't athletic ever to begin with. The point still being for Kansas City is... TJ Watt goes hash to hash, swats a Mahomes pass that like only TJ Watt can get to from going from one side to the other, swats the pass, gets intercepted by the Steelers. It would eventually set up better field positioning that led to the Steelers' one score that put them up 7-0 and made the game look like it was going to be close for a half second before Kansas City put up six straight touchdowns. And Mahomes should have had all six, if not for them getting fancy and letting Travis Kelsey throw one. They threw a big man touchdown, just teasing the Pittsburgh Steelers. And it's so much fun when the Chiefs get into win-or-go-home situations. Because we celebrated last week, the Texans were up 24-0 on the Kansas City Chiefs. 24-0. And the Chiefs scored 52 points in three quarters. Kansas City scored 42 in two. Two quarters. The Chiefs scored 42 points. It's amazing how good this Kansas City Chiefs team is when they actually have something to play for. And those two quarters were just euphoric Chiefs football that gives me the hope that they can beat the Buffalo Bills. But the thing about the Buffalo Bills, they can do that too. And the Chiefs defense is not good. Buffalo's defense is not as good as it once was, even though it's still super good with Micah Hyde. And we're going to get the game of the year next week between the Bills and the Chiefs. Like we talked about yesterday, it's the AFC Championship game. Whoever wins is going to beat the living shit out of the Bengals and Titans. This game is going to be so much fun. And the Chiefs offense is just toying with the Steelers. Who again, the Steelers had a great defense a couple years ago. But defense is always sporadic year to year because the performance levels of defenses change so much. Minka Fitzpatrick had an amazing year that first year with the Steelers, and he hasn't been the same guy since. He's still been pretty good, but hasn't been the same guy since. Devin Bush made a Pro Bowl in 2019. 
or no, 2020, Devin Bush made a Pro Bowl. And Devin Bush hasn't been a same player since. He, he, I mean, they're talking about trading him this offseason because he's been not great at all. TJ Watt being like a generational type player is always going to be good enough to keep them relevant. But the periphery players change so much on defense, and defense is so interchangeable year over year that it's hard to do analysis like that. The, the Steelers' defense was fine this year. The offense was so bad that the Steelers shouldn't have made the playoffs and were like the 11th best team in the AFC. But the defense was was still fine this year for Pittsburgh. And both games against the Chiefs, they just got torched. Like the Chiefs put up, what, 80-plus points in the two games they played against the Steelers? It's weird that it got to that place. But, yeah, Pittsburgh and Buffalo, or sorry, uh, Buffalo and Kansas City both put up ridiculously crazy scoring outputs. And it's so much fun. This is the thing that I find so magical about the Chiefs. When the Chiefs actually have something to play for, Look how amazing and fun that offense is. I was recording podcasts through this, and I wish I had watched more of the Steelers-Chiefs game. Like, it was so freaking fun to watch the Steelers play the Chiefs all season long. It was amazing, euphoric. Or sorry, it was so much fun to watch the Chiefs play football for the last four years, and to watch that game was a reminder that when the Chiefs have something to play for, they can still be those dudes scoring six touchdowns in four in two quarters. Buffalo only had seven possessions the entire game against the Patriots and scored seven touchdowns. Chiefs had six touchdowns in two quarters. There was no chance they were ever going to lose that game. It was, again, like I said at the start, the Steelers were going to get up to a, a, a close game early, and then the Chiefs would get a, a change of possession. The Steelers would have to start throwing the ball over the field. The Steelers, uh, the Chiefs would take advantage. They would blow the door open because Mahomes and Kelsey and Tyreek Hill are freaking amazing. That offense was freaking amazing. And Kansas City dominated the Pittsburgh Steelers. I know it's just gushing Pittsburgh Steelers praise or gushing Kansas City Chiefs praises, but come on. Kelsey, five catches, 108 yards and a touchdown and threw a touchdown. Jarek McKinnon, six catches, 81 yards, over 100 all-purpose yards for McKinnon and a touchdown. Tyreek Hill, five catches, 57 yards, a touchdown, and a touchdown called back because he got uh, t- he got touched down at the one-yard line. Pringle, the interchangeable fourth wide receiver, Pringle, five catches, 37 yards, two touchdowns. Oh, it was so beautiful to watch Patrick Mahomes put up a damn near perfect passer rating and look exactly like he did against the Houston Texans. Because when the Chiefs have something to play for, we have never, ever seen an offense as good as that Kansas City Chiefs team. And that includes a Bills offense that last week, or I'm sorry, yesterday, or I guess Saturday by the time people are listening to this, on Saturday put up a touchdown every time they touch the ball. And it still doesn't look like the way that Chiefs offense looks. So let's get ready for Bills and Chiefs because it's going to be fucking magical. And finally, we have you, Tampa. Congrats to Tampa for that big victory. Uh, Memes of the Weekend is going to do a better job analyzing this game from the Eagles' standpoint because the Eagles, woof. 
that game was exactly the way that we thought the Eagles were going to lose that game. The Eagles were predicated on the one good thing they had was running the football, and they couldn't run the football against Tampa Bay. We don't talk about how great that Tampa defensive line is. Like That might be the best run defense in the last 10 years in the NFL. This year and last year combined, like Tampa is ridiculously good at stopping the run, like better than any team I can remember. But yeah, it was basically 31-0. Final score was 31-15 because Nicky backdoors came through at the end. Nick Sirianni loves to backdoor cover. Tom Brady had a near-perfect passer rating. Uh, well, he, he did have the, the couple at the back end there. Rough plays at the beginning, but after the beginning of the game, near-perfect passer rating. 100 rushing yards, they ran the ball a bunch towards the end. Mike Evans had 100 receiving yards and a touchdown. Doing a little box score watching here, because got to be honest, didn't watch a lot of that game after the first quarter. Once I saw Tampa was up big, it was like, oh, okay, this is going to be this game. I don't have to watch some terrible Eagles offense. Eagles offense not really doing it for me at this point. And they scored zero points because the Eagles didn't belong there. And I, I was right. Like, it should have been the Saints. The bottomless pit of hell that we did dozens of podcasts analyzing produced that. The Eagles emerging from the bottomless pit of hell of Vikings and Washington and the Giants and the Bears and all kinds of terrible football fighting for one meaningless playoff seed in the NFC. They got dismantled by Tampa, and I think there is no more appropriate representation of the bottomless pit of hell that was the NFC playoffs this year than what was produced by or the race for the NFC 7th seed, not necessarily the NFC playoffs, but the race for the NFC 7th seed produced that team from the Philadelphia Eagles that put up zero points against Tampa because the only thing they could do is run the football. And you can't run the football against Vita Vea and Dominican Sue and Shaq Barrett because that might be the greatest run defense we've seen. And Devin White, throw Devin White in the mix there too. Maybe the best run defense we've seen in the last 10 years in the NFL. It's pretty amazing because there aren't a lot of great defensive tackles and, and the Bucks have two of them. Uh, I'm excited to see who Tampa plays and maybe this is a chance to talk a little Cardinals and Rams going into the Monday game but I think the Rams and the Bucks would be an amazing matchup and I thought it was going to be the three versus two matchup but now that the Dallas Cowboys lost and the Rams look like they can beat a depleted Cardinals team but the Rams also are starting Eric Weddle at safety so it's going to be a lot of James Conner runs and screen passes and RPOs from the Cardinals to try and draw the safeties out. All of that taken for granted. I'm really interested to see Tampa match up against either of those teams. Because the thing we've been saying all year is like Tampa, Green Bay, and Kansas City are the best teams in football. And we should have been lumping Buffalo in the mix there, but I'll lump Buffalo in there now. And the thing that I found so fascinating about the Kansas City Chiefs, the Buffalo Bills, Tampa Bay, and Green Bay over the past two seasons, really, because those teams have all been amazing, is even as they've gone virtually untested against the rest of the league because they don't have that quarterback or they don't have that defense combined with that quarterback, the thing I've found so fascinating about the Kansas City Chiefs, I'm sorry, the, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, is Tampa Bay has done a few things really, really well, 
and been remarkably healthy. And now they're not remarkably healthy, and they're still doing those few things really, really well. And Tom Brady was struggling out the gate, and then the Eagles' defense fell apart. And this game's not a great analysis. What's fascinating is the Rams pose a challenge to Tampa Bay the same way they posed a challenge to the Packers last year. It's just the Packers have so many, the Packers and Bucks both have so many different ways that they can attack you that eventually the Rams look up and they're like, ah, we did everything right. And Aaron Rodgers still got you or Tom Brady still got you. So if the Rams do end up playing the Bucks, I'm interested to see how they game plan that because the anti-McVay Rams have been throwing the ball all over the field this year. And that basically comes down to Stafford at that point. And Stafford's going to have some of that going into the Cardinals game. I'm just interested to see how that goes. All of this is because it's really difficult to do analysis on the Eagles and the Bucks. I mean, we can do the, is Jalen Hurts a franchise quarterback when the answer is no. Jalen Hurts is somewhere between 20 and 40, or not 20, he's somewhere between 25 and 40 as a starting quarterback, like not record-wise. Like he's somewhere between QB 25 and QB 40. We did the podcast with Morgan from Australia. We were trying to figure out who are the quarterbacks better than Jameis? And Jalen Hurts is kind of ballparky because Jalen Hurts can run the ball really well, but Jalen Hurts can't throw the ball very well. So it's a difficult analysis to do. We could do that podcast or we could do the how the Eagles rebuild with three first round picks. Honestly, I just need to see who the Eagles end up getting by the time this offseason's over. Are they one of the people who gets in the Deshaun Watson game, which I hate that we're still talking about that because, again, it's super gross and super negligent to be talking about the football side of Deshaun Watson seriously. But that's the only way I can analyze this game because the Eagles just didn't matter this year. They should have gone home a week ago. And the Tampa Bay Buccaneers are the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And I think Tampa's going to be favored and win probably against the Rams. If they play the Cardinals, they'll definitely win because the Cardinals are super depleted at that point. Uh, And also the Green Bay Packers are going to dominate the San Francisco 49ers. And that's our analysis for next week. Don't know how else to do analysis of this Tampa game other than talking about how awesome Vita Vea and Indomitian Sue are. So with that being said, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for stopping in to our NFL Monday wild card weekend podcast. We appreciate every single download and every single bit of support you continue to show this podcast and its partners. Um, We're helping make these dreams come true, and we're going to continue with all of this analysis all throughout the next few months. Thank you so much, everybody, for all of your support. Check out Memes of the Weekend, NFL Wired Up, breaking down the other playoff games. Check out all the stuff we're doing, because this was five hours of podcast content coming at you here straight in your face from a beautiful wildcard weekend. I had to sacrifice watching that Mahomes offense to come produce this show. So any and all support will be much, much appreciated. With that being said, take it easy, everybody. We'll talk to you again tomorrow. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.